Happy Monday. How's it going, Matt? It's going well. How was your weekend, Joe? It was a lot of fun. Yeah, Salt Lake City finally... Uh, well, last week we had the giant blizzard, which you, you got to see when you were here. Um, I, yep. I think that was one of the uh, biggest snowstorms, I think, of all, the, all year. Um, and then uh, now it's 70. So I guess welcome to uh, the Mountain West. So <laughs> what day is, Maybe it was Thursday. Yeah, I think Thursday in New York, it was like 75 degrees. It got up to 75 degrees. It's completely insane. <laughs> That's bananas. That's yeah, way too warm. Well, you guys didn't have much of a winter in the East Coast, no, right? No, so. no, really didn't. No, especially yeah. on the coast. Probably. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Yeah, knowing Utah too, it's basically there's going to be like uh, basically a couple of days of spring, then we just hop right into summer. So it uh, should be pretty awesome. Unless you get like a late April, you know, a couple inches of snow, which could also happen. So who knows? Well, I'll tell you, one of the biggest snowstorms I ever saw was in uh, it's a May first. I think it was like 1999 or something like that. I was driving to Wyoming, and I think uh, the town I was going to, we got close to five feet of snow or maybe more. So that, that could happen too. You never know. <laughs> I've also it. seen it snow in the summer. So yeah, um, I don't know. Weird stuff happens. But anyway, um, yeah, fun times. But yeah, it's just the two of us this time. Uh, it's, it's a rare uh, treat or punishment for the audience, depending how you want to look at it. Uh, Andreas we'll Walsh uh, was supposed to <laughs> see who shows up. Yeah, Andreas was supposed to show up, but he uh, um, got pulled into a last minute meeting um, that he couldn't get out of. So yeah. Uh, here we are. Um, we'll have but, him on, on in a bit. We're still looking forward to it when, when he can make yeah. the show. So yeah, yeah, it's gonna be great. So, but yeah, yeah. Anyway, it's good to good to see everybody here. We're actually getting quite a few guests. So that's a good sign. Uh, um, but yeah, I think we just want to make this kind of a, uh, um, a you know kind of a random uh, grab bag of topics. Uh, yeah. People tend to like this kind of format too. You know, uh, so for whatever it's worth, uh, I think people people do like the, the Joe and Matt show when we're together. So let's. Uh, give the audience a let's give them what they want so. it's kind of funny like we almost deliberately underprepare because we're always thinking about this stuff anyway and so like i spent the weekend reading a book on data catalogs by only Banyu about enterprise data catalogs which was pretty great so i definitely recommend that to anyone who's interested in data oh yeah that's a good book I, I read half of it i didn't read the whole thing but uh it was it was, it was a really nice book actually and yeah, my monitor is like freaking out here. Oh, okay. I, I think it. the really interesting thing to me, and, and we had Oleon a while ago, and maybe we'll have him on again sometime, is that it's not just like a description of the current state of technology. It's kind of a full, whole vision for enterprises of having the system where you can search all your data assets very easily, almost like you would a library catalog or Google search. And then he goes beyond that and says, but why don't you, you know, almost build your organization around search and just make everything searchable? At the end, when he's talking about the future, he talks about how every corporation has these like internal, you know, intranet landing pages and they're uniformly terrible and they're built on some like old Microsoft product. And like, instead of doing that why not have a search engine that just lets you find everything that you need to find in the company people processes technology mm. the whole nine yards so yeah 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 i think it's interesting i was actually talking with a, a friend of mine um he works at a Alation, which is a data yeah. catalog company or yeah. uh, however they describe themselves but he was what was really interesting is i think there's a new opportunity for stuff like chat gpt too to, to yep. comb your um yeah. data catalog and get metadata about your business because because if you try and uh, apply, um, you know, a large language model to a database, for example, the columns might be very poorly named. It might not get the right context, but it, it, um, a catalog actually provides a perfect, um, you know, medium to for, for searchability and training. So that was interesting. Uh, I think it's kind of the holy grail, uh, at least in our nerdy circle, is to have, um, you know, uh, large language models that are capable of understanding your business, uh, you know, and regurgitate back. Um, 
interesting points about your business, help drive your business uh, and so forth. So that's, that'll be very fascinating to watch. Yeah. So. Yeah, definitely. What, what do you think about the problem of hallucination or lying, depending on whom you're asking? Like, there are I love hallucinating. It's awesome. <laughs> um, so, um, but yeah, I think it's, uh, um, I mean, it'll get better, right? I mean, GPT-4 was all about just, uh, you know, uh, human reinforcement. And, and you can see this when you use chat GPT too, it's you have the uh, up or down uh, thumbs and you know, that's meant to give it some training signals. So right. I don't know. I mean, I can only expect these things are going to get better. I don't expect they're going to get worse. And so I would just say the inevitability is these are going to be everywhere um, and just counter it being everywhere. So, yeah, um, you know, but everywhere also means like to what capacity is it just uh, right. spewing back uh, information about um, a search or, you know, does it um, does some emergent behavior happen where it, it ends up being able to help drive your business at which point, you know, I was having a conversation about uh, this with Ryan Dolly last week on my podcast, yeah. which will be out this week. We were talking about basically, you know, what happens when, um, you know, AI is able to understand a lot of your business and what does this do to, you know, the analytics profession, for example, right? I think it's a very fascinating thought experiment that we're actually going to see playing out in real time. Yeah. So no yeah. pun intended. I tend to agree. And I, I think my opinion is what's going to happen is we're going to continue to see um, innovation in the large language model area, but then just innovations in the way they're used. And so specifically, I mean that if we look at the previous state of the art for generative AI, that was GANs, generative adversarial networks. And so this were, we're actually using multiple models to generate things. You had one model that would generate things and then the other model that would check to see if what you generated actually made any sense. So if you asked it to generate mm -hmm. a cat, for example, the, the second model will check and say, is that actually a cat or not? And then give it feedback. And so I suspect that the big advances in the next generation of large language models will actually be something along those lines, like one model that generates and then a mo another model maybe that can fact check. So to, to put this in historical context, think about IBM Watson when it was playing Jeopardy. And we get all these answers right by like crawling data <laughs> and doing like basic language analysis to look for answers. And at this point, the large language models can't play Jeopardy because they make stuff up, right? But what if you combined a model like a, a GPT-4 with a model that's kind of like a Watson or something where they compete with each other and it says, no, no, go back and give me another answer because that answer is clearly wrong. I think it'll be really interesting to watch the pace of innovation the next couple of years, but I think it's going to move much faster maybe than we expect it to by combining. This is how it becomes self-aware, Matt. That's right. So. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Which we're all waiting for so we can be. It's yeah. <laughs> it's kind of funny though, right? Because I feel like we're, you know, I, I mean, I've been reading about the singularity since I was a teenager yeah. in the, uh, you know, the 90s. And now it feels like we're sort of uh, at the cusp of something i have no idea what it is but yep. this it, so it, you know you put it in context too of, of kind of what this means for data engineering for example or ml ops or uh you know or software engineering or anything right it's um you know i remember reading uh under under uh, um article on software 2.0 several mm -hmm. years ago where he predicted that uh code would be self-generating and I was, at the time i was like yeah this guy's like completely full of crap but um now i'm like no i mean hold my beer this is actually a real thing so this is really fascinating. I don't know. I, I do feel like we're, we're just at the cusp of something that is um, none of us know what the hell is happening. I mean, if anyone tells you they, they predict the future on what's going to be happening here, I would say like, uh, um, you know, be skeptical. So it's the, these things are advancing so damn fast right now that I, I don't know that anyone knows what's going to happen. So, yeah, yeah, completely agree. It's um, 
it, it makes it a, I, I think tech people tend not to think about these things in terms of public policy, but there is a, I, I think that public policy is actually very important in this domain to have like the right amount of regulation, not too much, not too little. And how we do that exactly is a very tricky problem, but I think we need to be committing a lot of brain cells to thinking about these issues. Yeah, I think so. Well, yeah. You know, I know that you use, uh, you know, they're working on a GDPR2 right now, which a lot of that's AI regulation. Um, yeah. You know, we'll be talking about that in my podcast coming up. Uh, yeah. Somebody helping draft that, but stay tuned. I'm not going to give away too many details right now. Yeah. And I know the U.S. is, is working AI legislation too, right? But the U.S. will probably do it in its own uh, U.S. way where um, some of it will make a lot of sense and some of it will make absolutely no sense because of just of how the U.S. is set up uh, to govern things, right? So, um I don't know. But the thing is, this is going to move ahead faster than legislation will. Um, but when it becomes self-aware, it'll, it'll also know about the legislation. So it'll be really sneaky about it. Uh, so. <laughs> it's passing <laughs> like, the bar exam. No, I'm, I'm all, totally. Right? Like, <laughs> yeah, no. I mean, it, it, it would probably say, no, man, totally harmless. Don't worry about me. Uh, would you like me to make you a bar chart? It's going um, to turn into a really so. shady lawyer, basically. <laughs> Working in New Jersey somewhere in dark office. Yeah, in mall. yeah. The days of like ambulance chasing AIs is going to be here pretty soon. They're going to have their uh, uh, sign on a uh, sign of a bus. So, um, <laughs> so. <laughs> one call. That's all. Oh, some some of the uh, attorney ads I've seen on the subway are just amazing. <laughs> so. Oh, in New York. Oh, there was one that said like nothing eases the pain like a big fat payout. <laughs> it, was, it was awesome. Yeah. <laughs> oh, they would do that, huh? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and, I, and unfortunately, StreamYard's not letting us show the comments here, so I'll just read one of the comments out. Okay. Like, uh, yeah, Chris Tab, what's up, Chris? Says Italy has recently banned uh, Chat uh, GPT. Um, yeah, yeah. I saw a meme about that actually. I think uh, somebody posted. Um, you know, uh, they asked Chat GPT, "Is it okay to put pineapple on pizza?" Um, and then uh, somebody joked that that's the reason that Italy banned it. So. <laughs> <laughs> it says, yes, you can put all kinds of toppings on it. It's like, what is this, uh, sacrilege? What are you doing here? So That's interesting uh, because one regulatory issue we have in the United States is that Congress really hasn't acted on data or AI. And so individual states are doing it. And the problem with that is that now I, I've lost count of how many separate state regulations we have now, but we might be up to like 50. Utah has one. Utah yeah, has and one. from a compliance standpoint, that's a nightmare, right? If I'm a small startup with like five people and now I have to comply with like 20 different laws as opposed to, you know, one for the EU and one for all of the U.S. It's just I, I agree for, that there's a need for innovation, but that really stymies businesses to have that many laws to comply with. And it actually favors big business because if I'm, you know, a $10 billion company or a trillion dollar company, that's not a big deal. If I'm a startup that just got funding, it's a big problem. It's almost like it was meant to be. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, for people who aren't in the States, uh, the U.S., um, you know, we have different ways of um, of coming up with laws, right? So you got, um, yeah. you know, city, local, state, uh, county, federal, blah, 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 blah. And uh, none of these really mix and match very well, I would say. Yeah. Federal kind of trumps things, except when you get to states like Utah that or Texas that say, oh, well, that doesn't really apply to us because we're, um, we're different. So, um, yeah, anyway, so I'll be very curious to see what this looks like. I mean, Utah just yeah. had some legislation that, what was it, teenagers or young kids now have to, uh, you know, register themselves uh, to, to use social media. Um, they have to provide, like, an ID or, or something like that. And I was like, this is, the intent's interesting. Um, enforceability will be a different uh, um, 
topic in, in, in general. So I, I don't know. Yeah. yeah. It is it's what it is, man. To watch. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, arguably the tech industry has kind of run rampant over the last you know, decade. Oh, you so. don't say. <laughs> so, so this is understandable, but the way it's happening is a bit haphazard. It wouldn't say that we actually brought this on ourselves. No, 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 not at all. No, it's not. It's <laughs> no, not no. our fault. <laughs> it's not all everyone else's fault. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Of course. Um, somebody asks, okay, so let me go through the comments here and read them out. Cause like I yeah. said, streamers are letting us post these, uh, uh, Sonny Rivera, what's up, Sonny? He says, will the history of data and analytics um, and decision-making be defined by pre-LLM uh, and post-LLM periods? What do, you, what do you think about that? That's interesting. Um, I, I guess one thought I have is that the, the technology with respect to natural language processing, I, I view it more as a continuum because, again, you had IBM Watson. You had these various chatbots that you would interact with on your phone, like Siri, for example, which when that came out, that was kind of revolutionary, right? It was like, whoa. And that was way back things. in the day, like 2010 or something, I remember. Yeah, so, yeah, it was a long time ago. But yeah. like when that came, when that dropped, it was just felt completely revolutionary. And so I think we have all these like kind of gates we pass through where we see these big changes, but it is more of a gradual change. And I think there will be a moment when the LLMs get really good at maybe solving certain data problems. I don't think we're there just yet, but maybe it will be a year. Maybe it will be five years. I've been thinking about a lot about yeah. this with respect to, uh, you know, setting up data stacks and also yeah. data modeling. Like yeah. I've been, um, yeah, it's something I've, it, so I've been writing this book on data modeling and, yeah. and, and uh, chat GPT just threw me for a complete curve. Um, yeah, yeah, so yeah. it's like, well, okay. Um, I mean, this thing could probably figure out some new ones. So maybe we can't either. So, you know, I mean, it's, they're, they're kind of dumb now. Uh, they're getting better. I wouldn't think yeah. they're going to be dumb in about a year. Uh, I mean, GPT-4 is actually pretty dang good. So I don't know. I think, you know, I could definitely, it reminds me a lot of um, kind of two other periods in tech history, right? So you had the uh, the web browser. I remember when that came out. Um, yep. I, I was, for the audience, I was like, you know, I was, I was a nerdy teenager and, and preteen back in the day that was on the internet like, way before it was like really a thing. So, what and I got to you... try out, you know, what year did you 91, first see web? 90, 91 or two. Yeah, so see, I saw the I saw Mosaic early. 94, right? Yeah, so 94 yeah. is when uh, Mosaic had come out. Uh, that's about when I did. Beta version. So yeah, yeah, and it was dope. Yeah. Um, you could download like really grainy, uh, you know, um, pictures. And, um, you know, it took like two hours to download or something like that. They're like a mag. Uh, you know, but what, what I think it did is it opened your eyes. Okay, so like right. this is going to be a different way that we interact with, with um, the world. And then right. uh, the other one was the iPhone, right? I, yeah. That yeah. that ushered in a moment. And I feel like, you know, ChatGPT is the iPhone moment for um, for today, you know. And so who knows what will happen, but I think it's pretty cool. I mean, everyone's talking about it, including us. Uh, so, you know, it's um, it's just it's, I think it's a moment that AI hit mainstream. Yeah. Finally. Yeah. So, but AI has been around forever too. Like you yeah. point out Siri and all these things like who was it? Ken G had a post on LinkedIn the other day. Like, when do you think, uh, uh, you know, AI is going to take over your life? And I was like, I think it already has. I mean, if you look at your yep. phone, I mean, yep. it's been doing that for ages. Like try and be without your smartphone more than about a, a day. And, uh, you know, you'll probably be in a padded room. So, yeah. well, and if you think about it, it, What's our definition of AI? Is AI where a machine is able to replace a human job uh, function, for example? If you use that definition, then you can go back to like the 60s and 70s. So for example, airlines 
back in the day had to have a bunch of people in a room who would manage reservations so they could make sure that they didn't overbook planes and seats. And so they would get together and they would have this big card catalog of people booked onto planes. And then when databases came out, that was a revolution for the airline industry yeah. because suddenly a lot of that could be automated and you could have it decentralized as well, right? Like you could have teams all over the country that could work on this stuff instead of having them all stuck in a room dealing with like a physical paper record of who had a reservation. Um, and yeah. it's just continued since then. I mean, if we think about, I don't know, relational databases in the 1980s, that could be considered a form of AI in terms of its impact on the banking industry and insurance and all kinds of other business domains. And so I, I do really view it as a continuum with maybe certain big breakthroughs that happen along the way. Yeah, that's, that's how technologies always work. I mean, yeah. in innovation, I'm, I'm reading a uh, Vaclav Schmil's um, Invention and Innovation is his latest book. And that's really fascinating. It talks about, uh, you know, innovations that that happened and had a really bad impact on, on the world, like uh, um, leaded gasoline was one of them. Um, you know, it solved a lot of problems, but at the same time, uh, introduced a lot of very, very bad problems. Uh, you know, so it kind of goes to the continuum of invention, and this is just sort of the um, how it's always been. But, but you know, this has always been due to, to human ingenuity and creativity, and yeah. so it'll be yeah. very fascinating to see what happens when, you know, something other than us starts coming up with uh, new ideas. And it's going to happen. I mean, right. it, it's, right. it's just the inevitability of how it is. But, you know, like I said, I've been looking forward to this day since I was, um, you know, a nerdy teenager reading cyberpunk novels and uh, Ray Kurzweil's Singularity books. And, um, you know, so... Uh, I'm prepared. You know, so I, you're going to be uploading your consciousness like tomorrow, just checking out. <laughs> you might miss it may or may not if be, you did that. It, yeah, it might be <laughs> cross it, but there, you know, it, it may or may not happen that I get, get cryogenically frozen at some point. So uh, we'll, we'll, so we'll see. Um, but anyway, yeah, it's, it's just nice. It's fun to speculate yeah. on all this stuff. But it, like I said, it feels like we're just like living in real time through something that none of us can... Uh, quite put our finger on but it feels like this is definitely like a real-time inflection point in, in uh, humanity so right and in the data field right so i'm very curious to see what happens yeah. over the next several years and, yeah. and, and technology in general right yeah. i just think that a lot of the workflows that we talk about even data engineering it's um you know it's probably gonna probably gonna change um as it has so. right i mean we we wrote a book on it but frankly we wrote a book because it had changed a lot since the hadoop era since the relational database era since the emergence of data warehouses and it's it's gonna just keep right on changing basically yeah it will it will yeah, yeah kind of switching gears a bit i mean so we were at conferences recently um you know you were at data council we were both in switzerland at uh, skid yep. shout out to chris tab and um the elite crew for putting it on that was fantastic fantastic um, it was a great conference it's only time, gonna get yeah. bigger in the future i think yeah I think so. Yeah. yeah. And hopefully as an American edition in a Salt Lake City, hint, hint, yeah. hint. Yeah. Um, so um, there's more ski resorts here and it's a better place for conferences. It's cheaper. The Agile <laughs> Manifesto was signed here too. So That's I mean, right. enough said, right? And was that at Pi Snowbird? Con here next week. Yeah, it was at Snowbird. Okay. Yep. Yeah. I think up at the Cliff Lodge. Yeah. Um, but yeah, conferences, it's, they're, they're back. They're um, bigger than ever. Um, but uh, Data Council, tell me about it. What was, what was up with that? Um, it was really great. Just I got to give my talk where I was talking about the convergence of uh, real-time and batch processing and just had a lot of great conversations about the, where the data industry is going. Um, it, it's become kind of known as an investor conference. In other words, it's like a lot of practitioners and founders and such and people with ideas in the space and then a lot of people who are interested in knowing where the data industry is going so they can make investments or become involved with the companies. And my general vibe with the conference is that Obviously, the economy has changed a bit, and 
venture capitalists are kind of reorienting themselves, but I, I kind of got the vibe that they're looking for new ways to invest in data. So maybe there's been something of a pullback since, you know, a year ago, but also they're looking for like new companies and new, new ideas in the space. Generative AI, maybe. It, um, um, among other things. Yeah. So a lot of interest yeah. in like the next, what I'll call next gen real time. In other words, like what, yeah. how can we rethink real time systems to make them more accessible? Um, and to, both to developers and to ops teams, to companies, not both, but all, all those different areas, how can we make them more accessible? Because real-time technology has been around for some time, but it's had a reputation for being somewhat difficult to deploy, manage, develop, everything else. Um, what else? Like, uh, I, I think there's a continued interest in better data engineering tools that make it easier maybe to work with tools like Python. Uh, that's a slow evolution that we've seen where we went from things like Scala Spark to more and more PySpark, but there's actually a lot of interest in Python again, um, which I'm sure we'll see at... What do you mean uh, more interest in Python? Did it ever go away? It never really went away, but I think there was an attitude that Python is not a performant language, and so you shouldn't try to use it for data engineering. And I talked to a number of companies that are working on ways to streamline the movement from notebooks to production and to make Python mm -hmm. a more accessible language for uh, scaled data engineering that's more efficient, various ways to compile Python, for example. Um, PyScript is all the rage right now, so I'll be curious to hear more about that at PyCon as well. Yeah, I need to nerd out on that one. I haven't yeah. played with it yet. Yeah, and PyCon's here next week for the yeah. audience. We're um, Salt Lake City, Matson, New York, but Salt yeah. Lake City's cooler. We're having PyCon. You aren't. It'll um, be there. So. <laughs> yeah, he'll be there. Yeah, but so I'm very curious to see like what the conference track is and the presentations regarding, um, you know, Python performance. Yeah. Um, I know the talk has eternally been about the gillectomy, so getting rid of the global interpreter lock mm -hmm. on uh, Python. There's numerous uh, attempts to do that. But, um, you know, Python ain't bad either. But, I mean, it's kind of like, what do, you, what do you need to do at the end of the day? So I know a lot of people are trying to move to Rust right now, and I think that that's uh, going to be a very fascinating move. Um, you know, I know some Pythonistas that are all, all raving about Rust, but, uh, you know, Python's kind of here to stay regardless. Uh, yeah. Yeah, Jess Haberman says, ooh, PyScript rocks. Um, yay, yeah. Uh, so does Jess. Jess rocks too. Um, yes. So, yeah, I mean, you know, but, I mean, you can, you can interoperate with both anyway, Rust and Python, so I don't know. Yeah, I mean, the problem, so, so one of the key strengths of Python is that you can just hook it into C code, right? So you can basically make it as fast as you want to by just plugging C code into it and making a call C code. The problem is that that creates an integration headache and a portability headache. And so I think for a long yeah. time, the question has been like, how do you have that C code integration, but also support compilation on different platforms so the raw Python code itself can be fast? So I'll be curious to see what happens in that space. So just from awesome. looking at PyScript a bit, there's stuff happening there, certainly. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, PyScript. Uh, it's interesting. Watson might be the other one. Yeah, yeah exactly. Know, portability. Yeah. PyScript apparently so it's so uses. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Exactly. So, yeah, that's the one I'm bullish about. Speaking yeah. of which, you know, Mother Duck, shout out to yeah. them for the yeah. nice mug. Um, so actually, they're going to be speaking at the uh, Utah Data Engineering Meetup yeah. next week too. But I think Watson's a really I don't know, something that fascinates me a lot. I think yeah. that's um, you know definitely um, maybe a next evolution of portability and. Um, um, scalability too, right? So I don't know. We'll, we'll see. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I, so. I would say Mother Duck was probably more than any other company to talk at the town at Data Council. Um, I don't know if they well, really when Jordan shows up in a duck suit, I mean, like, <laughs> like come on. There, there were certainly but. critiques of the duck suit that we saw online afterward. So we will. Yeah, <laughs> I like the duck suit though, and Jordan Jordan's a friend, so you yeah. know he's he's uh, we're, we're, we're I think we're, we're fans, but it's. You know, but it's early days in this kind of stuff, too. I, yeah. I feel like, you know, the approach that they're trying to take. I mean, it's interesting, though, because it's the approach that um, 
uh, so I did a meetup last year with um, Single Store, and they did a demo of Wasm and Single Store. Yep. yep. Um, this before I think Jordan had taken off to start Mother Duck, and that was fascinating because at the entire time I was like, "Holy crap!" Um, running a, a database in the browser to say the video right. game demo, and I was like, "This is insane!" Actually, right. you don't do right. network traversal, right? You just stats in the in the database in the browser. And I was like, "Okay." Uh, you got my attention. There's a lot of applications for this. And I think that's maybe in part what inspired, you know, the, the um, desire to maybe try out uh, DuckDB in, a, in the browser, right? So, but I think it's cool. I think it's a cool idea. Um, and I'm excited about the potential of Wasm for a lot of things, actually, because, mm-hmm. you know, I was pinging Jamak telling her, you know, I think her whole, her ultimate vision of data mesh, for example, of, of, in the truest sense of decentralized data sharing amongst individuals, which, you know, is the other version that she probably yeah. doesn't talk about yeah. much, but it's like that could be accomplished by, um by something like Wasm, for example, um, you know, cause, I mean, because you already have a lot of the um, the web interfaces built into the browser, so it makes actually the the sharing of data quite seamless. Um, yeah. if you're to if you're to do it, so I don't know. Lots of opportunity, though. Yeah. So. Well, we've talked about the pendulum swing of um, remote versus local processing, right? So historically, you yeah. go way back and you had mainframes, and then there were many <clears> computers, <throat> which brought the computing a bit closer to home for people with lots of money, of course. And then PCs, okay, now all my computing is happening locally. And then the web happened, and all the computing got pushed remote again. And then it was really like the advent of mobile plus JavaScript compilers like Google V8 that yeah, hybridized approach. So in other words, remote backend, but local process, a lot of local processing. And I think that's what DuckDB is doing. It's like that next evolution, but now applied to analytics, not just to, you know, basic web, app, web apps that run on your phone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm yeah, curious to see where this all goes. I, yeah. So in chat GPT, you know, um, on, on your, on Wasm, I'm just kidding, but well, I mean, I, but there are... It's actually probably a company there, actually. So. Yeah. Well, because the thing is, ChatGPT, to train it, takes a lot of compute that you're going to run in the cloud, right? But there have been examples of running these models locally, like kind of a reduced version of the model on a local machine, not training it locally, but just running it so you can get responses. Yeah, Stable Diffusion runs on the new M2s, for example, exactly. locally. And I think yeah. there's like... I can't remember if it's uh, Hugging Face or Stable Diffusion, but they have like a uh, version, I think, on... Um, um, some some sort of generative AI model that's available on a core uh, what is it uh, core ML or something like that on a iPhone. Mm. So like Dolly um, so maybe or something else. I can't remember which one okay. it is, man. It's you know there's so many. Yeah, all the all the hallucinations space. I have. Yeah, it's like uh, <laughs> <laughs> I told you not to plug an LLM into your brain. I told you this was bad. <laughs> Or an MLM? One, which one? Uh, <laughs> right, right. Uh, I'm in Utah, so it's you know. viral. Yeah, yeah. Could be the one. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. What were some of the other, uh, you know, data accounts that what's some, cause I, I kind of consider that to be, you know, sort of the, um, it's where all the cool kids show up. I wasn't there. I, I, I was like, uh, you know, on my deathbed with some illness during that time. So I wasn't, uh, wasn't going anywhere, but, um, yeah, what were some of the, uh, the talk tracks? I mean, what, what were the, what was the talk? So you know, the conference halls, for example, right? The, the, the hallway track, like what were some things people were talking about besides what we just talked about? Um, so, so there, let, let's, I won't name these companies by name, but there's one really, really big vendor that used to call themselves a cloud data warehouse and now calls themselves a cloud data platform. And there's another company that now frames itself as a data lake house company. And so there was a lot of discussion about the competition between these two players. I think you must, you probably know whom I'm talking about. So a lot of discussion around that. Uh, yeah, definitely a lot of discussion about LLMs. Um, 
let's see, uh, Makiko and I were talking quite a bit about uh, Makiko Basley. We're talking a lot about uh, the difference between data ops and ML ops. And actually, our conclusion was that there are differences, but like the, the area of overlap is pretty significant. And so we should be talking more about how data engineers and ML ops engineers can collaborate as opposed to compete with each other. Oh, hey, that's a talk I'm giving in Germany in a yeah, couple yeah. weeks. <laughs> yeah. so, it's interesting, Costas, um, he wrote an article recently on uh, the ML ops community about how like, what was it? I'm going to butcher it, but like 98% yeah. of uh, ML ops is just data engineering. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, exactly right. Yeah. And that, that was our conclusion too. It's like, yeah, there, you know, in the tech industry, you see a lot of reinventing the wheel. So everyone wants to come in and it's like the, the old saw about like every generation discovers sex. And in some sense, every discussion, every generation <laughs> discovers data engineering. In fact, there's been a lot of like ceremony around, even in the Hadoop era, it's like, oh, everything here we're doing is new. And uh, Bill Inman would argue to the contrary that a lot of stuff that they're doing is just kind of reinventing the wheel. So. Yeah. Well, he, he helped invent the wheels. So exactly. Yeah, yeah. He knows what the wheel looks like. Yeah. So, so there are new iterations each time, right? But I think each new generation should try to learn as much po as possible from the previous generation. That's kind of an argument you're making in your data modeling book as well, I believe. Well, this is a sense of reinventing the wheel, right? And again, it's that's the old trope. But we, I think it's the one thing we're really good at is reinventing wheels. Yeah. Um, it's like we get paid to do that or something. So. Um, yeah, Senator Veras has added data modeling to the wheel. Fred Darrow says everything old is new again. Yeah, these are both yeah. uh, both very true. Data modeling is one of these things where I feel like it, it definitely goes in a pendulum. Right now, I think we're on the end of the pendulum where um, I think people are, it's kind of a free-for-all. Yes. Uh, a lot of the established techniques, you know, um, you know, aren't as widely used or acknowledged. Uh, right. I think right. this is... I think this is empirically true too. I mean, just go and go and talk to any data team and ask them how they're data modeling. You will not get a consistent answer these days. Right. Right. Um, Chris says that observability. Yeah, that's also true. Yep. I mean, yep. um, but yeah, so it's, you know, old's new, new's old. Um, you know, the approach I'm, I'm taking with my book though is, you know, and, and the approach I'm taking with data modeling is that I do feel like it's on life support right now. I will stand by that argument. Mm -hmm. Um, and by that, I mean that just a lot of the, um, the widely used approaches, widely known approaches aren't um, as known or recognized now. So there is a lot of wheel reinvention yeah. uh, for better or for worse. Right. Um, and so and you're finding out data modeling by going to Slack groups or going on to, you know, various forums and then just kind of identifying, OK, so these people are doing this. Therefore, I got to do this. But what's what's really missing right now is the notion of, um, you know, the kind of the higher level uh modeling aspects of conceptual and logical modeling mm -hmm. we were talking about last week with larry yeah. burns yeah. right um shout out to larry one of those underrated people in the industry i think but go read his it books. feels like his books are good yeah. right um you know but i feel like the, it, it's it's more of the notion of modeling uh to accomplish uh cohesive and coherent business concepts yes right that's what i'm getting at like physical yeah. modeling there's a there's a, there's a uh there's a slew of different ways you could do that there's going to be more ways you can do it. That's not my problem with it. My problem right. is now it's like, there's just a notion of like coming up with, um, you know, and agreeing on business definitions across the data lifecycle, concepts, processes, mapping these out, understanding how data flows, how processes flow. Like that's, that's a lost art. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And that's, I mean, if you look at a lot of the critiques of the modern data stack, they really come down to this issue, which is the tools are actually really great. Like a generation ago, people would have been, <laughs> just blown away to have such tools at their disposal. The problem is that they're so easy that we are reinventing or just not doing things, right? We just like throw it all in your 
in, in your database and don't worry about how it's modeled. And modeling has a lot of business value fundamentally. Like it can really improve the performance of your organization, cost efficiency, a lot of different things. And so I think the next iteration of the modern data stack is to actually apply processes to it and say, we need to think about what the, you know, what are the concepts in this data? <laughs> what, are, what should the logical model be? And not get so hung up on the physical model, which is what's been happening recently. Yeah, that's exactly it. And that's my whole point, Yeah, yeah. right? Introduce you to a bunch of physical modeling techniques, right? you know, but also tell you like, at the end of the day, it really does come back to the logical and conceptual um, modeling, which you just have to figure out. Like, what are those concepts yeah. that you're anchoring on? Like, that's a, that's a really big one. Um, you know, I'm reading this book right now. Ronald Ross was nice enough to send me a copy of his yeah. book, Business Rules. Hmm. You should get it. Uh, oh, that this sounds guy great. Is, yeah, I'll order it. Yeah. Yeah, he, he's awesome. Yeah. Um, he's, uh, you know, um, he writes about rules, business rules. Very sexy topic. Um uh, I'm kind of joking, but the thing is, this is like the necessary stuff, right? This is the hard stuff. Um, yeah. But this is stuff, you, if you can get it right, things work. If you can't get it right, um, you have chaos. And I, and I suspect a lot of the reason that we have, you know, a lot of the um, kind of these tools that surround the modern data stack, whether it's yeah. quality, observability, and, and whatnot, I think can, you can trace it back to the root cause of that. Um, if you're not thinking about your data up front when you're creating it, um, you're going to have problems. And this is what happens. And one of the arguments we've made, and actually an argument I made at Skid about data modeling, is that right now what tends to happen is the data model in the application itself is created either completely haphazardly, I think that happens quite a bit, or yeah. if it's coherent, it's created without any thought for analytics downstream. And I think increasingly, and this aligns pretty well with Stramok's data mesh concept, we need to integrate analytics thinking into the design of an application from the get-go and also into the iteration of that schema over time. Um, especially with real-time, as we've discussed with folks like those from Materialize, for example, you don't really have time to change the data model when you stream, right? There's, it's just not practical to like completely remodel the data, which is what happens with traditional enterprise ETL. And so you need to think about it as the data is produced so it can flow right into an analytics operational system from there. Not just analytics, so machine yeah. learning, right? Yeah. I mean, oh, it's, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, Completely yeah, right. unless you're yeah. using generative AI to analyze the data, which actually is happening now. So, um, <laughs> you know, as Brian Green, he has a really good point here, uh, which I wish I could show the comments. Thanks, StreamYard, for not letting us share comments. Um, yeah, he says upgrade. if you don't use the data model, I don't know, man. Sometimes <laughs> their stuff works, sometimes it doesn't. So, you know, taking a snipe. They're, they're a good team. They, they help out with their yeah. problems. We yeah. ask me about Brian Green. Um, he says if you don't use the data model to generate the applications and the data flows, you end up with a collection of tools you need to try to observe. That's just it. So I use the analogy yeah. of yep. basically it's an EKG machine, right? So, yeah. um, I mean, you can set up heart monitors on you, which is great. Uh, you could also try and like make it so you, you treat the reason why you need a heart monitor in the first place. Um, you know, so, I mean, it's good to detect things and you might detect things that just, you know, strangely happen that you don't know about that. That's always right. how it right. is. Right. But at the same time, I think a lot of the culprit is, um, data is just hard to reconcile with. And why is it hard to reconcile? Uh, well, again, when it's created upstream, um, if downstream users and stakeholders aren't aware of it or aren't involved in that process in terms of defining, you know, business concepts and so forth, uh, you know, have a stake in that, then it's like, what do you think is going to happen? Data teams right now are on the receiving end of everything. It's, yeah, the, old, it's yeah. the old saying, shit flows downhill. Yeah. That's where data teams are. So. Yeah, and I, I think we... Analytics has been an important part of business processes since at least the 1980s, but I think gradually 
there's a shift in executive thinking to recognizing this fact and recognizing that we need to think <coughs> about analytics throughout the process and and also just and ML. And and ML. Yeah. Well, now in the yeah. contemporary world, yeah, ML as well. Yeah. Exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it's just a notion of thinking about things in the holistic life cycle right. of data, right. which is how it always should be, right? Because right. my, my beef right now with the data modeling techniques, you know, when I'm talking physical modeling is, and it's rightfully so, this is how it should be. But they're all uh, very use case, very technology specific, right? So relational databases has relational modeling, um, data warehousing, you know, depending on how you want to define it. Uh, it has its own uh, techniques for modeling data there and so forth. And so, um, but these are very siloed ways of looking at the world, right? Yeah. So and you have very... to think of it as a continuum. Exactly. And there's so much ceremony, right? That's the other complaint. And that's kind of why in the big data era, people tended to reject data modeling out of hand because so many people were telling them that they were heretics and not doing things right, rather than saying, how do we figure out how to adapt our techniques to your technology? Which became its own ceremony too, just like yeah, Burning yeah. Man's a ceremony for, uh, you know, for <laughs> yeah, burn it all lack down. of rules and anarchy. Exactly. Yeah, it's the same thing. Yeah, it's yeah, just, yeah. you guys just, you know, it's, you're worshiping different, uh, different things, but at the end of the day, it's all ceremony, right? And yeah. the thing is every data model, anytime you have data in a system, it's a model, right? You intentionally created that data in a way to, to conform to something. Therefore, it's it is a model. Whether it accurately represents reality or not is a different story. But uh, you know, a crappy data model is still a model. Yeah. Just like a crappy picture is still a picture. It just right. it may not make any sense, but it's still a picture. So. So it reminds me, you took that picture. I think that was in Paris, right? And someone had chalked on the sidewalk. It was an anarchy symbol, and then it said "salary for life." It was like totally self-contradictory, and that's kind of what a lot of this ceremony reminds me of, right? It's just like mashing together these concepts and getting very attached to them without thinking about bigger coherence. So. Yeah, I'll show the uh, audience here. So there's a, uh, uh, yeah. So in Paris right now. So I was in Paris. Um, yeah. And it's an absolute junk show there right now because uh, of all the protests. Um, but there's a salary for life with an anarchy sign. So I'll just let the irony sink in on this one for <laughs> a few seconds here. Um, I mean, yeah, the government sucks. But, but as long as we pay burn it all down, school, but salary for burn life. it all down, but pay me money. Um, so, you know, I mean, shout out to, you know, people. I think, you know, um, protesting is always a cool thing, I think. So, you know, I'm not going to dog on people. I think it's just it is what it is. Um, but I did think it was kind of funny. Um, so it was like, it was, you know, it's anarchy everywhere, but yeah, you know, so, but uh, smash the state or something like that, but no, it won't happen. But yeah, yeah. It's interesting too. You know, I, you know, when you travel to places like Europe, it feels like, you know, a lot of topics we talk about in the States, you know, same topics people are talking about over yeah. there yeah. in different ways though. Right. I feel like Europe moves a lot slower than the U S um, in business. So, which I think is a feature and a bug, just like the, you know, uh, move fast and break things in the U.S. is um, also a feature and a bug here. It works until it doesn't. I think the yeah. U.S. just has really high highs and very low lows. We don't have like sort of anything in the middle. So it's we're the land of extremes. Yeah. Well, and I, as I said, I, I'm worried about the, the state of regulation in the United States because we don't have coherent action <laughs> regulations. Um you posted a while ago about what was it? The U.S. innovates and Europe regulates, and I think if we're not careful, we'll end up switching places without having coherent regulations here, because every state will try to step in and do it instead, which actually could be far worse than the situation we have now. 
Yeah. Well, I mean, the U.S. will, what, you think we're just going to keep regulating then? Or the EU is going to start innovating? Or Well, meaning if, if I'm a company and in the U.S. I have to deal with 30 separate privacy regulations versus in the EU, I only have to worry about one. Like, that's a far simpler situation for me to confront. <laughs> so. Oh, no. In the U.S., you got to deal with the EU, too. Oh, that's true. I guess my point is yeah. that eventually, <laughs> so, if we don't, if we don't get that like state level regulation situation under control, then we could end up way overregulated in the United States. To oh yeah, yeah, for sure. Innovation, yeah. That's, yeah there's that's some company here in Salt Lake. I think it's 650 or something like that, yeah. but they deal with uh, regulation and compliance, and it just seems like it's a patchwork of just stuff. Like, the exactly. more regulations, I think, the better this company does because, like, how are you going to make oh, sense yeah. of it? Yeah. So, and you just pick you pick the most atrocious one and just level towards that one. Yeah. So. You know, I'm not sure who has that right now, if it's still CCPA, yeah. California's law or somebody else. But it's like, I think you just want to overweight on like, who's the harshest? Yeah. And just pick that one. And if but it's then, EU, then, then it's EU. So. But it's the fine print, right? Is there some weird like niche regulation that say Wyoming has that I either have to comply with or I have to stay out of Wyoming? Like that kind of thing gets to Who knows? Headache. Yeah. Yeah. It is a headache. And it's also kind of the risk assessment, too, of like, what are they yeah. going to do? Exactly. Right. Are they even yeah, going to yeah. go after you if there's some like, or kick us small out company? Or us? Like, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's targeted at the big tech companies, though, right? right. I don't think that's right. any like secret. It's not targeted at like, you know, the mom and pop shop. I mean, they might yeah. be there on the receiving end of some dumb that's stuff. That's the problem, right? That's regulation yeah. happens, right? Yeah. 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 Well, because again, so. if I'm a small startup, I just started and I have five people, could I still get sued by a random state where I didn't? In theory, yeah, yeah, you could. Yeah. So, yeah, and that would put me out of business, and so yeah. <laughs> so our lawyer, I think, would just assess it like, what's the risk of something happening to you? Yeah. You know. Yeah. So, I mean, because what's it? I was reading like, you know, the average person commits like two to three felonies a day. <laughs> really? <laughs> Tell yeah. me what what felony did I commit? Today I don't know what felonies you want to commit today. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, if you go Google it though, it's it's an interesting thing. Uh, it's it's actually a published stat. I need to dig into it, but I uh, you know I heard it on talk radio, so it must be true. But I was like, this <laughs> that's fascinating. I mean, you yeah. know, uh, I mean felonies right so yeah. um, that was a very explicit thing like you commit felonies every day most people do i'm like i don't know what that would be um yeah. try and be an upstanding citizen but uh so well in the u.s we have this weird situation where there are a lot of laws on the books that aren't enforced but aren't necessarily unconstitutional either have never been like specifically contradicted and so in theory someone could try to pursue you with one of these old laws vindictively or something Kid was telling me about some weird Utah laws. I'm just going to yeah. uh, show them to you because I think they're pretty funny. Um, so there was um, something. Yeah, elephant hunting is strictly illegal here. Um, what else? You can't sheep herd in Salt Lake, surprisingly enough. That's that's something you can get in trouble with. Okay. There was something about it playing a violin, though, which I thought was interesting. Anyway, interesting. Um, yeah. Yeah, I don't well, there, know. Anyway. There were these old laws. I mean, they might not even be that old, but they were something about like you couldn't ha serve alcohol at a strip club. And so at one point, this was like over a decade ago, but there's there's Brewies, which is a movie theater that serves alcohol, right? And they're kind of like Alamo Draft House, the original out of Austin, from what I understand. But anyway, they were showing R-rated movies. And so like the prosecutor went after them for like supposedly showing serving alcohol at a strip club because they had these R-rated movies that had nudity in them or something. Um, yeah, here it is. Okay. Yeah. The average person is thought to commit uh, at least three felonies a day. Um, this is the, uh, yeah, it's from a Harvard professor uh, estimating uh, the number of felonies. Yeah. So it must be true, obviously. Um, <laughs> yeah, Harvey Silvergate. So just go uh, look that up. Um, I'm not lying about this. So just as uh, it sounds like a hallucination to me, but yeah, no, 
<laughs> telling you the truth here. So, um, yeah. So anyway, none of us are locked up yet. So not yet. Um, yeah. Just don't. Uh, yeah. Anyway, that's yeah, cool. So what, what other stuff is on your mind right now? Uh, that's a good question. I think the economy is kind of on everyone's mind, right? Like it's just feels like we're still in this weird period of uncertainty where there are strange, strange signals like bank collapses. And yet we're still waiting to see with bated breath to see what's going to happen next. Yeah. 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 I'm curious to see what that does too. I mean, you know, it's interesting with startups. I mean, you know, yeah. funding had just you know gone from like, you know, bad to worse right now. So right. that's, Fascinating to see. So I'm very curious to see how this impacts, uh, you know, startups in particular, right? Um, you know, in the data and tech space specifically, right? So I think it's gonna it's gonna cause businesses, I think, to maybe operate a lot better, right? Um, and, you know, I talked to some founders and they're like, you know, it's gonna be hard to raise money, so I'm just gonna do it my own way. And I'm like, you go, that that's cool. I think that yeah. you should, uh, you know. I mean, I think VCs are great, but they do have a very specific way of looking at the world. Um, you know, and it's not the only way to, to run a business. I mean, if I look out my window, well, I, there's no business here because there's a giant hill in front of me. But if I were to imagine looking out the window at all the businesses in my neighborhood, um, I don't think a lot of these are VC funded. Um, you know, I think a lot of these were, you know, very traditional businesses. And there's nothing wrong with that, right? I think that that notion of having to hyperscale a business and, and all this stuff, I, I think it, it works until it obviously doesn't. And you're seeing right now what happens when a uh, um, the, uh, you know, the funding cycle dries up and your valuations cut at least in half, if not more, um, yeah. you know, now you're back to having to do weird stuff like make money and, uh, profits and I don't know, it's a, it's a strange idea, but. Well, and it's interesting. It really has shifted the founder mentality. So I've, I've talked to multiple founders who've said, yeah, at this point I'm, I'm looking to raise a seed round, but then I really don't want to raise any more money after that. I just want to run a profitable business because the, the money beyond the seed round comes with too many strings attached, basically like this expectation of being a unicorn. So think about this, think about, you know, you go found a business tomorrow and then within five years, your business is valued at a hundred million dollars. Like in most circles, that would be considered just astonishing success to do something like that. But in the venture capital world, if you don't hit a billion dollar valuation, then it's considered a waste of money, which is kind of insane. And uh, it creates a lot of unnatural, you know, business acts basically trying to reach this billion dollar or multi-billion dollar valuation. Mm hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're just in a different different world right now. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, it's like treasuries are basically paying as much as stocks right now. Think about it's that. Crazy. Well, so, and who knows? I mean, the market could go down. Any number of things could happen. With could it. go down, could go up, yeah, probably yeah. will go down. I don't know. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it's interesting. But yeah, I think it's it's cool talking to founders these days, though. And I think they're, you know, kind of reassessing how they're going to run their businesses. And they, yeah. again, I think it's it's going to mean for different business models that aren't traditionally, you know, what we saw the last 10 years, but yeah. the last 10 years aren't what we traditionally saw in business with low interest rates and, you know, um, hyperscaling and stuff. This was just, I think this was an anomaly and you're going to look back on this period and it's going to just be like, yeah, that was a very unique point in time, you know, until interest rates lower and then you go back to kind of where you were. But yeah, yeah. again, we're not, we're not macroeconomists and stuff. I no. mean, I am reading actually the, uh, Statistical Consequences of Fat Tales by Nassim Taleb. You, you would like that book. That's like very uh, nerdy and mathy. Um, I, like I, I mean, so. I, I should read all his books. So that I've read a couple of them. And there, are, I mean, honestly, there are frankly things I agree, disagree with sometimes, but he always has interesting yeah. points to make. He's a bit of a troll, but not necessarily in a bad way. In other you words, don't say. <laughs> he's there to provoke people into changing their thinking. And I call him kind of a deconstructionist. In other words, he's more interested in deconstructing ideas as opposed to constructing systems. But like, I think we all kind of need that when we're assessing the way that society runs and things that maybe don't make so much sense. But I think he's got a really good systems thinking mind. 
wine though too yeah. well he, the anti-fragile the anti-fragile thing right yeah yeah exactly so but that's fascinating because it takes a, it takes a look at like mathematically like you know how, how do fat tail risks work and yeah yeah. That was a really good expedition because it's like, you know, he talks a lot about it in his books, but at the same time, it's, it's not, um, you know, he's like, oh yeah, you can, you can use math. And I'm like, oh, well, why don't you show us how you would do that then? So, yeah. Well, cause he, so. if you follow him on Twitter, it's amazing the amount of math he posts on Twitter. <laughs> oh, he's smart. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he's, he's yeah, mathy. Yeah. I don't know if that means you're smart, but it means he's yeah, good. Yeah. He's, <laughs> he's also smart. I mean, yeah. yeah, yeah, so. yeah. It's good people so. like this exist, but yeah. 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 Who's, who's, who's in Nassim Taleb of the data world? Oh, that's an interesting question. I don't know off the top of my head. Do you have an mm. opinion? Mm. No. No. I mean, I, I think I, he I, is, right? He's very into data as far as I Yeah, know. he is actually. Yeah, I'd say yeah, maybe yeah, he is. Yeah, yeah, I was trying to think of somebody because it's like, I think there's a lot of people who have opinions and, and you know strongly voice them online. I don't think there's anyone who thinks on his level that's in our industry. Right. So except maybe him. So... Yeah. Yeah. Well, because it's kind of funny. I mean, to be honest, I think I think we as a as a herd that the whole tech herd are kind of simple minded in our outlook in many ways. Like it's a lot of very simple minded, smart people in some sense. We tend how to have very mean? specific, like narrow goals and narrow ways of thinking. So that's that's how I see it, I guess. But isn't that like any profession, though? Maybe. But I, I think in principle, people more interested in philosophy or the bigger picture do try to take a broader view of things. And so I think, I think we, if you're in tech and you've worked as an individual contributor, you tend to get very obsessed with like narrow, narrow things. So for example, let's think about the, you know, programming language wars, uh, functional versus object oriented and how deep down the rabbit hole people go on these arguments. And it's just like a very narrow slice of something that at the end of the day probably doesn't matter very much either for society or even the evolution of technology. Don't tell them that. Yeah, that's right. I mean, right. But no, it's, 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 as you say, you know, the, the, uh, the arguments are so vicious because the, the, the stakes, stakes are so, so small. low. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah well, cause you, you see people arguing over programming languages, like some people absolutely hate Python, which I can understand that there are some annoyances, but they hate it because it doesn't correspond to some very pure paradigm, like static typing or like functional programming. Yeah. And it's like, well, I just want to get stuff done. I mean, and if you look at the languages that are built around a very pure paradigm, they tend to not get used that much. So. Oh, no, I have a good example. I used to work with somebody who was a uh, functional programming purist. Right. And he said, too, he's like, you know, businesses would succeed if they adopted functional programming. And I'm like, you, that's probably the most clueless statement I think I've ever right. heard right. from somebody who is supposedly smart. Um, like if you've gone and run a business, I don't think functional programming has anything to do with your success or failure. Um, one iota. Um, right. It has to do with, you know, a lot of other things, but certainly yeah. not that. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, as people have pointed out, you can't, you can't build a real system that's purely functional, right? Like as, as soon as you need to like access a database or do some other, you, you get side effects all over the place. And so like, I think the functional paradigm is useful, but it's not usable in an absolutely pure way in a real system. Hmm. Don't tell them that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, you're going to get a lot of, uh, got to get a lot of hate mail. For I'll, that I'll have to check the state of Haskell because for a while I know, uh, Facebook was using Haskell heavily for certain types of distributed systems, but I, I don't know what's going on with it now. It's a cool language. Cool I went language. through, you know, yeah. I went through a phase yeah. where I was already got on Haskell for a yeah. while and yeah. it was like, but then I was like, okay, this is good to, I think to learn functional paradigms, but at the same time, like no way I'm ever going to use this in production. Yeah. Um, you know, say I get successful and I have to hire somebody like, like I say, like, Oh, go use Haskell. 
because that's what I use. I guess one company I worked at, it was, you know, the functional programming shop. It was also a, uh, a machine learning company. And, and we were, they decided they were going to build something in like F sharp for some reason. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, seriously, like, where are you going to find F sharp programmers in this area? <laughs> exactly. Do you realize like the learning curve for that? You got to learn functional and then you got to, uh, you know, learn this language on top of everything else. And then your own, you know, idiosyncratic way of like doing functional at this team, you know, um, it was, it was kind of bananas. So, um, well, I, I knew one company and they started out as a Python shop and then their like head developer who, who was one of the first hires decided that the next step was to go to go. It's like, you know, I've looked at it in, in terms of scaling up our distributed system. Go is a great language for managing distributed systems processes. So he started switching over to that and then he left to take another job and then this new team came in. And they're like, oh, no, 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 we need to rewrite everything in Clojure. <laughs> like, Clojure is this JVM-based, you know, kind of functional oh, God, language. Oh, farted. He's <laughs> <laughs> like, Clojure is cool, but I wouldn't want to, like, it just doesn't have the mindshare to justify a total rewrite in Clojure. Like, so much of programming comes down to more pragmatic considerations. Like, can I find developers, to your point, to maintain mm -hmm. stuff? Yeah, and somebody here says that they're part of a business that failed large because of functional programming. I'd love to oh, see that example. Maybe, yeah. I'm, maybe I'm totally wrong, but it's like... I. I don't know, having run businesses and been a part of businesses for a long time, I, I just, if you're going to blame functional programming for that, either you're so tightly, your either business model was so tightly coupled to your programming paradigm, um, you know, or, um, or, you know, something happened or maybe you're just crossing the streams and getting confused. I don't know. Anyway, if you got an example, show me. I'd love to hear so, it. But I, I mean, I could see it though. If you as a programming shop, if say your IT org, is so obsessed with functional programming that they're not actually getting their jobs done, then yeah, in a sense, functional programming destroyed the company. It's not that functional programming per se was the problem, but like people's obsession with this kind of obscure idea overrode their just common sense of trying to get work done. Yeah, I mean, yeah. business at the end of the day is like selling people what they wanna buy, mm -hmm. right? That's yeah. literally the essence of a business and it's right. you know providing customer that, that value and that's that's literally it. If we start overcomplicating it, I don't know what to tell you. Um, so, you know, maybe, maybe it was like a, a you know, a, a service that, you know, somehow broke, you know, repeatedly because of the way it was programmed. I could, I could see that maybe. Um, but, but again, that the things that went into influencing the decision are, are more of what I'm interested in. Like how, how did you get so tightly coupled in the first place? Right. Yeah. It's not like functional programming just sort of sprung up on its own. Like I don't right. know where and said, right. Hey, I'm here. I'm going to run, I'm going to ruin your business now. Yeah. Um, you know, it was a lot of decisions. Like you say, the decision to move from language X to language Y. Yeah. Right. Like what was that based on? Right. Was there was some sort of use case or was this more like resume driven development at the end of the day? And I don't know. I mean, I, I got opinions on this. I've also run yeah. a business before, so I think I know yeah. what I'm talking about here. Um, you know, but um, yeah, it's, it's interesting. But again, I think as programmers too, and as tech technicians, we may tend to overweight our, our significance in the success or failure of a business. And, and so if you're a tech company, it might rightfully so be that you're, you're important. If you're at a more mature company, I wager to guess that, you know, decisions made by executives might have a bit more influence so well and fundamentally your a lot of your contribution to the success of the company is getting your job done that's important but also just doing a good job of interfacing with the executives and actually finding yeah. out what needs to be done and so if i'm thinking about a company that failed due to functional programming well how did the cto let that happen or was there just no communication between the it org and the cto people developing code like there was some some kind of disconnect there it wasn't just <laughs> the programming team that screwed things up yeah and this person says here um 
Yeah, Haskell doesn't allow much flexibility. I'm, I'm guessing that maybe yeah. they're using Haskell made yeah, for yeah. a very long development cycle. Scala is much better middle ground if you like, if you like a functional program. Yeah, I tend right, to agree with right, that. I mean, right. I, I would have to understand like how Haskell even got into the mix in the first place, you know, so, you know, maybe there's a good reason for it. Maybe it's not. But if it caused long development cycles, that to me is a that's a business decision at the end of the day. That, yeah. The language being used is a consequence of that, but somehow somebody thought that'd be a great idea, and um, I don't know. So, but again, you know, we're strongly opinionated people here, and uh, um, usually talk out of our ass too. So there's, there's that. Um, <laughs> it's so. that kind of week. It's that kind of week. It's just it's that kind of week. It's yeah. been a kind of, kind of year, frankly. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, like I, I see a lot of it, you have to get to the root cause of like what was the decision, right? So right, in my right. case, it's always like I always ask five whys, you know, uh, or something like that. Um, just like, why did you get into this uh, um, situation? You know, and keep asking that. So you, you'll dig into it. Sometimes it's it's a very intuitive answer. Sometimes it's very counterintuitive, right? right. Um, but at the end of the day, it's like businesses, at least for now, you know, until generative AI takes over, um, you know, they're all run by people making decisions, and um, which is a fascinating thing to study in and of itself. You know, if, if you look at organizational decision making, that's a that's an interesting topic on its own. So oh, yeah. it's a vast topic for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Cool. Anyway, I think we'll wrap it up. Yeah. Um, We've ranted uh, it up for one week. Yeah, too much managed to offend the entire planet here. Right. Uh, <laughs> next week, we got, uh, let me check the calendar here. we got Malcolm Hawker. He's, he's cool. He's going to be on the show. Um, then we got uh, the following week, some people from Cube. If you're in Salt Lake City next week, uh, the big one's PyCon. So yeah, um, that's, that's going to be dope to hang out there. Plus, at Utah Data Engineering Meetup next week on um, was it Wednesday over at Recursion doing an in-person meetup. We're going to be um, talking with uh, Mother Duck. So that'll be cool. Talking about um, DuckDB and all that fun stuff. Um, and then what else? This Thursday, I'm doing an event. Uh, my uh, friends at Matillion, they're actually starting a new podcast. So I'm going to be uh, uh, helping uh, host that. So that's um, Thursday at 9.30 or 10 o'clock um, Mountain Time. So that's going to be that's really cool. Talking with Mark Balconetti, who's... He's an OG in the space. I really like talking to him. That guy and I, we can talk for hours. So, um, yeah, so that'll be dope. Um, other than that, pretty pretty light week. So Pretty light week, yeah, yeah. So we're all kind of hunkering down, getting ready for PyCon, I guess. Yeah, PyCon. I'm recording a bunch of new shows for uh, for my podcast, The Joe Reese Show. So if you haven't checked that out, go check it out. It's on uh, Spotify and um, other podcast platforms. It's audio only, so you're spared the... Uh, troubles of having to stare at me on the screen that's uh, that's definitely a huge benefit so um i'm liking the audio only forecast format though that's oh, been a lot way of fun easier. to do yeah and you can yeah. just focus on the audio production quality and not have to worry about video at all yeah yeah video is just a different world right yeah, so yeah. but we've been doing videos i mean this is like our i don't even know how many videos we've done so oh i uh, mean yeah i'll have to check youtube and see we must be up to what are we up to hundreds couple, yeah hundreds yeah yeah, plus being on other people's shows and yeah. all that stuff. So, so yeah, it's um, yeah, it's awesome. So anyway, and by the way, I'll give you a quick shout out to Matt and I are coming up with a, uh, a data engineering workshop. Um, so that'll be announced very soon. But if you want us to come into your company and uh, teach you the uh, the art form of uh, data engineering, um, who else to, who else to teach it? Right? Yeah, yeah. You know, Matt and <laughs> Matt and me were you know. Uh, we're the best in the biz. So, other awesome people too. What's that? Yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll have more to say about this at PyCon. That's the current. We'll have more to say about it. Yeah. yeah but yeah. just giving it a sneak preview on that. Yeah. Stay tuned. So, 
Anyway, awesome. So talk to you all later, Matt. See you around next week. And talk to you uh, soon. Yeah, thanks to the audience out there. Yeah. Great, uh, great interface. Thanks for letting us rant. We'll talk to you all soon. Bye-bye. Take care.